Welcome to It's a Nice Place to Brew with Jason and George, a show about all things beer and beer making. Gentlemen, please broadcast responsibly. Welcome to A Nice Place to Brew. I'm Jason. And I'm George. And I am drinking a Sam Adams Oktoberfest. <laughs> is it that time already? Miss it is. It is. You know what? I, I want to talk about this a little bit. Uh, the time of this recording is mid-August of 2019, and Sam Adams Oktoberfest is a beer that I look forward to every year. Oktoberfest was one of my early loves of craft beer, going back till I was probably 21 or 22. I reach for this beer very early, and I look forward to its release every year. And I know I'm not alone in that. No, certainly not. But what not. I find very interesting, and it, and, it, and it excites me a lot, is it seems to me like its release gets bumped a little bit earlier each year. Well, and I'm wondering about that, too, is like, does that, because part of it is it was available kind of late September until maybe early November, you know, so that was part of its uh, allure, right? Well, maybe maybe early early on, and uh, well, just to give one example, as you know, my birthday is at is at the uh, very end I of August, and I remember I remember going back more than a decade that I would I feel like I would start seeing this beer right around my birthday. Oh, okay, so it was a little but, earlier than that. All I right. mean. Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, if you think about it like this, so you'd it'd be on the market the entire month of September, the entire month of October, that would, you know, fully be expected. So seeing this around late August, fairly appropriate. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now, don't take this as me complaining, but, you know, we're still in the dog days of summer right now, and a week ago when I bought a six-pack of this was, you're, 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 you're very much in the early part of August. So, hey, you know, if there's demand for it, you know, I guess people will be buying it, and this guy here is one of them. Yeah, sure is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what you got, sir? I have a English mild ale that uh, we did as a work share with a local brewery, and All so right. I took my five. Yeah, I took my five gallons. Uh, did you know regular fermenting with? English ale yeast, and then for my secondary, I racked it on top of uh, licorice root in a vodka tincture and let it sit there for about a week and a half and then kegged it up. Wow. Yeah, and it it did bring out some of the licorice flavor, um, but I think, honestly, I probably could have added the whole of I only added about half the pack of licorice root uh, per the directions, but I think the fact that it was an English mild, and so it's already kind of really full-bodied and has a decent amount of flavor to it, that I could have added the whole uh, pack of licorice root and maybe gotten some better results. So the the licorice flavor is just not present enough? Not present enough. It's there, but it's not as um, present as I'd like it to be. I would think in a style like an English mild, light would be the way to go with that. So I think you, I think you made the right call going going soft on it. I I would agree. Now, if I sent you a picture of this English mild, it's a very dark English mild. 
So it is it is one that's kind. Of, what what contri- what contributed to that? I'm not sure. Do you have like a dark a dark uh, caramel? Or I imagine he did. I like I said, this is a work share, so I don't know the rest. Oh, of that's him. right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That's right. But yeah, so it definitely has a lot of those caramel kind of um, sweet malty notes to it, which it's a really good beer. Um, the guy did a really good job with it, um, but. I think the fact that that has a lot of those sweet malty character, you know, characteristics to it already, meant that my licorice root, which is a sweet kind of character as well, just kind of got subsumed a little bit. So I think under normal circumstances, you're probably right that a English mild I could have gone light on it and been okay, but with this one, I think I probably needed to go a little bit heavier. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fun little project, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Cool, cool. Well, cheers to you, sir. You too. So you've been busy since our last uh, session. I have. I have in many different ways. I I have a double IPA that's in the catalyst at the moment, is finishing up fermenting. Excuse me. Um, Half... I believe fermentation will be done probably probably by this Saturday. We're recording this on a Thursday, so about two days from now. And this will be my first time using the Catalyst where I'll be doing a secondary fermentation with a dry hop. Oh, okay. Now, the Catalyst is built prime to make this very, very easy. So I'm looking forward to not racking this over. I'm looking forward to just pulling the tube out from the uh, from the little instrument on the bottom of it and using a hop bag to dry hop and not run the risk of what I ran into last time I made my double IPA, which was get my keg clogged up by <laughs> too much hops sitting on the bottom. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm uh, moving moving upwards in multiple different different ways on this brew day. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, and the catalyst is made but for that big- really, uh, you know, really well. And um, definitely, yeah, I also definitely recommend a good solid cold crash on that too, just to make sure you can get all the particulates out of there. As you know, my setup has some challenges right now with on the topic of refrigeration, but I did make a move in the last two days that will ensure that I will have said appropriate cold crash. Okay. So. But in other big news, as George had alluded to, I have not only just been brewing, but I've made a major addition to my setup. I built a keezer in my garage, and the brewing garage now has four live beer taps available to myself on brew day and pretty much whenever I want. Nice. Yes, yes. This was quite quite an upgrade and really a, a, a fun project. Um, we've got a couple of uh, uh, topics to cover here on the show today, and we are going to lead with, with this one right here about, about building a keezer. Um, first of all, this, uh, this keezer construction would not have happened if it wasn't for a couple of things. And I, I will first give credit to George here for not only giving me an example of a project that he had done before that served as kind of a model for this, but also for being a constant source of knowledge 
as I as questions came up throughout this process. So I very much appreciate you uh, you contributing to this in that way. Not a problem. Not a problem yeah. at all. The second thank you I must give is to my partner in crime for this for this project, uh, Mr. John down in Tinley Park, who uh, who's become a frequent uh, brewer uh, with me, is uh, has become a frequent uh, attendee of um, various uh, events at our at our JBG uh, meetings, and I kind of hope that I'm serving to teach him a little bit. He's said before that he cares less about learning as he does just hanging out and enjoying the product, and that's fine too. But, uh, John, I, I owe you big time for this. Thank you very much. Okay, and that's that. So I want to I go into a, a little bit about kind of how it came together, um, talk a little bit about why it's a good idea, and why this is a very manageable project. Any bullet points I'm missing there, George? No, I think that's, you know, why it's important is, is, is you know, you think it's kind of obvious, but I, I think I see where you're going with that. Um, no, I think you hit the high points. Good deal. Well, start off with, with why it's a good idea. Well, what's more cool than having tapped beer at your house? <laughs> That's the first part for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And talk about the topic of impressing guests. How awesome is that? Yeah. If you're just walking somebody through the garage, it's like, hey, you want a beer? Just pull on that tab. Yeah, that's pretty great. <laughs> um, second point is it's really a very ideal setting to house kegs long term. Yes. Yeah. Now, I guess the, I guess the one point I would add to this is uh, choose your uh, choose your refrigerator before you modify very carefully, and make sure it's the size that a will fit kegs height wise, but also is the size to fit just whatever volume of kegs that you just that you just happen to own, or that you want to have chilled at any particular time. So yes, yeah. yeah, yes, you exactly. And I, you and I went slightly different directions on that um you know because of some space constraints that i have where i am but uh yeah mm -hmm. it's it's uh, yeah definitely make sure that the height thing is one that'll bite you in the ass if you're not careful oh yeah it, it'll ruin the project <laughs> but for but fortunately there's i mean even in the worst of circumstances there's things that you can do to make that work mm -hmm. so if even if in the odd possibility that you bought a fridge that wasn't tall enough, um, one thing, one move that you can make is to make sure you're buying wider wooden boards to to make your wooden collar. Well, you and the wooden collar is going to add height to your to your fridge. So just choose accordingly. Well, before we go into to that, do you want to kind of describe the general makeup of how you built your keyser so they understand like why the wooden collar is there and everything? Sure, sure. Okay, so first off, a chest freezer. Choose one accordingly. Um, si you know, the, the size of and the volume of, of kegs, you know, kind of drives that decision. And uh, bring that to your house how, with whatever means you have. Either if you have a truck, you're smarter than I am. And if you don't have a truck, which I'm right in that boat, then rent one or, you know, hope you have a friend that does. Um, 
so and then with uh, with the fridge you can do you can go about one of one of two ways and I will highlight one as, as the f- much much more preferred method um, you can be really brave and just drill into uh, into said fridge to uh, to input some uh, some taps into that fridge now that uh, that avenue carries quite a degree of risk on a couple of different levels. Number one is you may accidentally drill through one of the fridge's coils and you may ruin your fridge as a result. The second possibility is you may leave yourself with a lot of, um, a lot of energy loss, uh, leaving potential gaps in the fridge, and you, just may, you may have a working keyser, but you may have a pretty nasty electric bill in, uh, in line with that as well. So you can avoid both these risks by building a wooden collar, which is simply just a uh, um, four-sided um, f- sided square of wood, which uh, ends up uh, ends up as an attachment between uh, between the the fridge itself and the door that uh, that swings open and closed. What am, I, what am I missing? No, not much at all. So, I mean, the, the nice part about the, the wooden collar is, like you said, you know, it raises the height a little bit. You get to, you know, you put your lid on top of that and you can drill your lid into the collar. But then, like you were saying, is you don't have to drill through the fridge at all. You drill your taps directly through the wooden collar using a, a hole saw bit uh, or, a, or a pan bit. And you just mm-hmm. run your taps right through there and you know if you want to expand it or anything like that you know you can at any point yeah so one other decision that you have to make uh when putting this product together is whether or not you want to keep your carbon dioxide inside the fridge itself or if you want to uh, house your tank on the outside and it's the only modification is one extra hole in the wood, which you'd have to have to run outside the fridge to to get to your uh, carbon dioxide tank, which is what I did. So, and I, and as right. I understand it, you kept your CO two inside the keyser. Did you run it outside? No, I kept it inside. Kept it inside. And there's, you know, I don't think either of those is a bad decision. It, I think it's just more a function of just what, how much space you have, and just. You know, do you have other ideas for using that small little like step up space that st- comes pretty standard within within chest freezers? So for me, George, I know yeah. you. Yeah, I know you mentioned you wanted to do some soda projects and some small kegs at some point, and that partially drove your decision. Yeah, that and being able to cold crash inside of my keyser. So I use that step up space. I, I have a plastic five gallon, uh, six gallon carboy that fits pretty nice on that shelf space. So I can cold crash. You got a, you got enough heat to, to cold crash right there. I got what? Do you, uh, yeah, because I I usually run my keys are pretty low, so you know in the in the in the low thirties. So I can uh, I can cold crash. I got enough. I was space just... that I can fit that in there. It's a tight fit, but it fits. And and yeah, yeah I do want yeah. to get a like a two gallon um, corny keg, and so I can put it in there and do small batch projects, do pilot pro like little one gallon projects for, to try out new recipes, or um, uh, try like soda or ciders or things like that, and be able to do that as a smaller batch project. Um, so that 
that's yeah. forthcoming as well. The cold crashing on that step step is an idea that I that did not cross my mind. Yeah, and I really feel like my carboys would not fit on that step. But uh, granted, I've never looked yeah, at it. Yeah, I guess it. it's a little bit of a tight fit. But having the the plastic carboy with the thinner walls helps um, because for me, it wasn't so much the height; it was the width. Um, but it, it mm. it's a tight fit, like I said. But it works. Um, the yeah. other thing for me, and the other reason why I put my uh, CO2 tank on the outside, and this is just me being anal, I think, but regulators to show how much CO2 is left are calibrated to show that at like 70 degrees. Mm, that's, that's a good so point. So if I look at my regulator and it's inside at like 30 some degrees, it's going to show a whole lot less on, you know, of how much CO2 I have left. And it'll give me a false reading of either showing, you know, show me that there's less. So I'll either think, oh, I have more than I do, or I won't realize it when I'm running out. So I just wanted to keep it at Mm -hmm. room temperature so I could, um, you know, gauge that more accurately. And like you said, it was an additional hole drilled out and I ran into the outside and then Mm -hmm. I mounted, I don't know, did you do this too? I mounted my, uh, my manifold splitter, um, to the collar on the inside. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did in the same place you did. It was uh, it was on the back half okay, of it. Yeah, so right where I drilled in, I have my um, CO2 hose going, and it just goes right into my manifold. And you have four taps. I have two. Uh, did you end up going with a four or five for the ma- for the manifold? I took your advice. I did okay. by five. So I've got four four beers hooked up to it, and then an empty one for. Uh, for when I would need to hook yeah, up the beer cone. Yeah, and so th- that's that's what I have too. I have, I have two because I've only got a two tap system right now. So I've got one for each keg and one for my beer gun. So I can just turn that on whenever I want to, you know, purge bottles and things like that. So yeah, right. Yeah, it, you know, right. it's not a hard project. What what it take you to do? You know, the, the longest part was waiting for the the sealant to uh, to dry. Which they recommended about two to three days with with some weight on the top. That is the first part of the project is um, buy the wood, construct the actual collar, and then put adhesive from the wood to the to the plastic fridge. And they and they do recommend be patient with that. Mm-hmm. You know, don't rush the rush the thing to go to go too fast. Let it you know let it do its thing. You know, let it glue together and then do everything else. So once that was done, um, it, it was all just a matter of uh, putting the manifold in place and then hooking up all the tubing. Yeah, and it, one thing to so, point out is um, it's not exactly like you know an outdoor deck or anything. You don't need ground contact wood, but you should seal it in some way. You you went the the lacquer varnish route, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's this is a good thing to talk about. Yes, I did. Yeah. So what I did was I I did a, a stain, like a kind of like a deck stain, on that, which is a, a protection kind of material as well. So either way, you, you just want to you're just going to be exposed to some moisture. So you want to make sure you protect the wood so it'll last longer, it won't degrade or anything like that. You want you don't end up with a project that you're having to replace in you know just a year or two or anything like that because of wood rot. Yeah. Now, I'm really glad you told me about that too. I mean, 
that would I would not be a happy guy if I got you know a year or two later and now you know the woods has gone to crap and now I've now this project I put together is ruined. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. So, so thank you for that. Not a problem. So. Um. What uh, What else about this? Um. I guess one comment about tubing. Um. Through asking some questions to some people, it was. Uh. It was some advice was given to me that when you're when you're putting the lines to together from your kegs to the taps at the end of the fridge give yourself five feet of line per keg mm-hmm. and the reason for that is because you're going to prevent a lot of pressure buildup within the tubes which would contribute to just nothing but foam coming through uh coming through the taps pretty good advice it's a simple advice to take just buy some extra tubing which will cost you an extra dollar fifty so yeah and that if was you, an easy decision to make and, and and the other thing that um i actually need to take a look at with mine because I, I is try to make sure you have the same diameter and length of tube to each of your taps um because yeah. the function of how much you know push you need from the co2 at what temperature is directly correlated to what kind of line you have and now Jason and I both have the setup where we have one regulator uh, that can do one pressure. So it's all going in the manifold. So all of our kegs are at the same pressure. It's yep. not ideal, but, you know, it works. Sure. So, uh, you know, if you have, say, what, what do you have yours at? Like 10 pounds of pressure? Something like not that? Even. Not even. I mean, as a, as a resting pressure? Check, check. I can hear you. Okay. All right. This is going to be awkward. Um, we are not in the middle of the original recording. Um, this is proving to be a bit of a Murphy's Law podcast episode. Well, yeah. If Murphy hates our guts, man. <laughs> I, I hear you. I feel like we did something wrong to him. We, we did not Jeez. please either the right, podcast so gods little, or the l- beer gods or both. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, long story short, a couple of things that George and I have, have had to contend with um, since the last part of the episode disconnected was George had a massive thunderstorm come through Virginia, which uh, cut our recording short. Mm-hmm. Somewhat unexpectedly. Yeah, well, very unexpectedly. It was like all of a sudden it was, you know, Thor was throwing a party or something. It was insane. (laughs) Yeah. Which was followed by George going on a long trip. And then fast forward to today, and we already had one microphone loss, uh, one track that we had to delete, and now we're back and keeping our fingers crossed that the bad luck has come to an end. Yes. Okay, but um, we're going to do what we can to soldier on, and we're going to try to pick up right where we left off about uh, building a keyser. And the uh, the the point that we ended uh, the last conversation on is quite relevant because George and I just had a conversation last night about this, and we talked about pressure that we keep our kegs at in our uh, in our keyser. So, George, you just got back from a long trip, and 
during that trip, you intended to pressurize a keg. Do you want to uh, fill that in a little bit? Uh, yeah, I, di- I did. And, uh, you know, I was looking at the usual keg carbonation charts before I left, and I put my keyser at 10 PSI and uh, put an APA on at about 36 degrees and went on vacation. And I came back about a week and a half later and yeah it's carbonated but it's also under carbonated like you would usually have a mild or a stout like that level of carbonation low twos kind of situation so okay you know i thought about it some and and looked at the carb charts again and and looked at where my temperature probe is which is pretty far down inside of my keyser and I'm thinking that the top of my keg is probably a little bit warmer than 36. Uh, and especially considering there's a degree of separation in my uh, in my ink bird. So it only kicks on to cool it down to 36 when it gets up to 37. I don't know what yours is set at, you know, one or two degrees differential. Three. But, three okay i may get my hand slapped for that in some circles but yes i have a three degree differential well it but anyways on what you're trying what's to do how specific you need to be but you know so yeah now how does this play into it because you mentioned about the temperature pro being on the lower part of your uh, of your uh, keyser that's mm-hmm. also where your dip tubes are pulling the beer from yeah but it's not where your gas so, tube is putting the gas in yeah, that's true. Because you remember that gas tube's only, you know, half an inch or Yeah, that's inch. really you're right. That's really you small. Know? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're do, if you're carbonating from the bottom like you have a carbstone, then yeah. But it, and, and, and to be perfectly honest, I don't know how much that's actually relevant, but you know, what I did was I kicked it up to about 15. Um yeah, about 15. And I'm going to see how it uh, how it does after a little bit more time, and uh, and I think it'll be able to carve up a little bit better. And I think that's a more realistic temperature to keep it at for carbonation purposes. Yeah, how long and has it been pressure. on 15? Overnight. I did that yesterday. Overnight. Have you yeah. checked it today yet? Drinking it right now. Oh. Um, okay. Yeah. So this is a American Pale Ale that I made with uh, grains from a local um, distillery brewery out here called uh, Old House. And uh, we do our, our meetings there now and for, our, for my homebrew club. And they gave, they gave us all 10 pounds of, um, of grain, of base two row grain. And so I decided to that uh, I think I talked about it on, the, on a previous show, but that uh, APA that I made that I wasn't too happy with. Uh, yeah, it was our our, our dueling brew day uh, brew. Yep, I wasn't right. super happy with my results. So I remade it, took in, took, used their base grain, and took some advice from them on um, what to do uh, to the recipe and made you know a little bit of modifications, mostly added more hops to it. And this version, which is basically like kind of version two, is much better. And I'm much happier with how it turned out. All right. Awesome. Pretty daggone clear because it was cold crashing for probably a week before I put it into a keg. Okay. Yeah. What were the gravity numbers on it? 
So the gravity, the uh, the the OG on it was I don't have my book in front of me right now, but I think it was about ten fifty five, and I think it got down to ten twelve. Okay, all right, not bad. Yeah, very so fitting. That comes out to I think five and a half percent, right? Something like that. Something like yeah, between five and six, yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, okay. Very so, cool, yeah. very cool. So okay, so back to the uh, back to the CO two. Um, yeah. I guess I guess my only I guess my contribution here is when I'm carbonating, I always keep my PSI somewhere between fifteen and twenty, and then I just kind of check it on a day to day basis after it's had a couple of couple of initial days. Um, once the carbonation is done, I keep a resting pressure of between four and five psi on my kegs, which is just enough to push the liquid through the tubes, which is all it really needs at that point after carbonation is done. So. That's true, but I have a question for you about it pushing through at that at that pressure. Do you get enough? Uh, like, how does it come out of your tap? Does it come out as a good flow, or does it come out as kind of like a trickle? Oh no, no, it comes out just fine. Okay, all right, and that's really a function of how long are your lines and how uh, what's the diameter of it and things like that. The ones that I have. Are a little bit longer have a thinner diameter so i usually keep it a little higher than that otherwise it comes out kind of like a trickle and uh yeah yeah okay so cool. yeah okay all right uh, all right well i guess in conclusion um keyser project is well worth going for on many levels yeah. um it, it's the ideal place to re to keep your kegs um, who doesn't want tapped beer at their fingertips in their house? And it's just, it's great all around. By the way, oh, I, I meant to mention this uh, before we closed up. Uh, I ended up changing direction based on our conversation during the last recording. I was keeping my CO2 tank on the, uh, on the step within the uh, fridge. I since have uh, made the decision to move that outside of the uh keyser and through the uh, through the wooden collar so what that's what that's allowed me to do is i do have enough room to cold crash uh if i place a uh, uh carboy carboy on that uh, on that step okay. i didn't think i would have enough height to make that happen but lo and behold i did so i said you know what i need to seize the moment and just and just redo the setup so i have done so and thanks to george's advice so. Man, I'm all about making things as multiple use as possible. And so being able yeah. to have my keyser be a cold crash as well as be a, a lagering area, um, that's where it's at for me. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's hit pause here real quick, and uh, we're okay. going to come back. We have a couple. We have a number of other things to talk about on today's episode. Uh, the next topic we are going to talk about this little phone app that many of you might be familiar with, and that's called Untapped. I'm going to step away for one second, but uh, stay with us. I'll be right back. And we're back. We are, and I just learned something that I find somewhat disturbing, and I don't really 
understand why, but it is disturbing to me. So you are, if I remember correctly, you're 37? I am. Okay, I'm working on 38 this year in, in about a week and a half. Yep. I am as old. I No, I'm sorry. I am one year younger than Macaulay Culkin. I mean that's I mean that's fitting. I mean because we were we were both kids I, when when those movies came out. I I know, but I mean I just have like no sense of time when it comes to like when Home Alone actually came out. I guess because I always picture <laughs> watching it as like a early teenagers. I don't know, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's just a bit of random nonsense that the internet threw at me and just okay. freaked me out for a second. Anyway. <laughs> let me add, let me add one thing to that because I feel like I was in a unique position with that movie Home Alone because it takes place in Chicago and of course I'm born and raised in Chicago so I feel like I had a somewhat of a special connection to that movie based on that because um, you recognize a lot of Chicago sites like O'Hare Airport and, and stuff like that and of course I had that movie on VHS and I played it until the tape didn't work anymore so yeah well, who didn't yeah I, I, yeah exactly <laughs> I mean it's you know I I think. I don't know if you're looking at a website that has the info. I think it was 92 that that movie came out. I, I, I may be uh, off by, sure. by I, was... I may be off by a year. I'm not sure, but but yeah, that I, was honestly what I was looking what I was looking at was Twitter where Macaulay Culkin <laughs> replied to a, part- a to a petition to recast him as nine year old Kevin because for some godforsaken reason they are remaking Home Alone. And they said the oh petition said God. to recast 38-year-old Macaulay Culkin as nine-year-old Kevin. He said, I have a problem with this petition. I'm 39 years old. That's, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> that's pretty good. And that's when, I, that's when I learned I'm a year younger than Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> so, well, hats off to you, Macaulay Culkin. Anyway, Cheers to you. Were- <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Good sense of humor about it. Anyway, you yeah. were saying? Yes. We are here to talk about uh, not Home Alone. We uh, we have a phone mm, app yeah, to sorry. talk about. And um, this uh, th- this may get, uh, we may get into uh, debate territory here. Um, and we are going to step away from the homebrew topic and we're going to venture into the craft brewery uh, landscape. Um, because this app that we're talking about is all about uh, craft beer and caters to anybody out there who's a fan of craft beer and exploring craft beer. I'm talking about an, an, an app. Let me try that again. I'm talking about an app called Untapped, which any slash all listeners of this show are probably familiar with, if not actively using. I will say on the onset, I am one of the somewhat active users. I will stop short of saying that I'm flying the flag of untapped at all times, but I certainly appreciate it, and I think it's definitely something to jump onto. George? I'm a bit more tepid. Now, I would not say no to an untapped sponsorship of this here podcast if that were 100%. to become a thing. 100%. Absolutely untapped, not. We're, we're, ready to, we're ready to talk whenever you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, anyway, with that said, I'm, you know, I just, I'm not a big, like you guys have been 
seeing how much I've been keeping up with Twitter and things like I am not a social media guy. And the, you know, and remembering while I'm enjoying drinking beer to rate said beer is not a thing I do. And so my uses of our untapped are much more utilitarian, which I find very useful, by the way, of what is this beer rated by other people that, you know, are enthusiasts like myself? Where can I find it? And what's around, you know, like what what craft breweries are around those kinds of uses of it. I, I do all the time and I find extremely useful. So thank you, everybody, for letting me crowdsource your opinion of breweries to help inform my you know and 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 for me you know the point totals are one thing but reading the comments do you like it because they have super dank ipas or because they have a good variety and things like that and that helps to inform my decision as well so that's really kind of how my use of it goes around so you're using the information but not contributing to said information yeah yeah i'm a total leech like that you know no honestly like i'm i'm somewhat in the same boat and i can totally relate to that with similar apps like yelp or just any other resources for things that are not craft beer um it's it's really the same concept and and i i completely understand how and why people fall into that i do feel like untapped though is maybe the easiest app to contribute said information to because you can do it in multiple in, all, in multiple ways you can add photos you can add the location where you tr- uh, where you tried it at and you can write a description of it and your description can be as little as like 10 characters i mean it's like stupid simple you know crisp clear and you can be done i mean it's certainly if you want to write a novel you know I mean, I'm sure to some yeah. extent you do. As a matter of fact, I do think there's a character limit to the reviews. I can't remember offhand what uh, what that is. But I've again, seen some long ones, though. Uh, yeah, may- maybe. Yeah. Uh, but, you, but you're not wrong. I mean, their, their input, the way, you know, when you drink a beer, being able to input it, it's super intuitive. It's super um, easy to do. And it fills in some suggested things like, you know, it uses your location service on your phone. Kind of, you know, okay, thanks, untapped big brother. But it says, (laughs) I think you're at this bar. You know, do you want to check in there that you had it there? You know, that kind of thing. And and it makes those kinds of things easier. Mm -hmm. Have you been in, um, well, as a matter of fact, I've taken you to a place once that had this. Um, There is certain tap rooms slash breweries that have these automated screens where it where it directs you exactly how to find certain beers on untapped so you can go in and read the reviews and also add reviews if you want oh not where i thought you were going but yeah i have seen those i've also seen the untapped apparently also has uh digital menu boards that are driven that's no that's exactly what i was referring to oh that's what you're talking about yeah 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 I think that's a I mean number one I think that's a that's another very cool thing and it just yeah it just adds to just the the ease and also the the wide utility that this app uh, can bring to craft beer people yeah. everywhere I could see um, in the future and maybe I'm getting too techy on this and maybe I'll even delete this if this sounds really stupid but I could see at some point that 
within craft breweries, you would have you'd be able to like scan a barcode and go right to a brewery's untapped page, and you can be like one click away from everything that they have on tap at that point. No, that's I mean that's not that's not dumb at all. I could easily see okay. you know barcodes or QR codes or something like right, that. Right, right. I honestly I think that's a great idea. <laughs> okay, you know? all right. Yeah. Similar to, similar to you. I mean, do I am I constantly adding reviews to Untapped? No, but I did just uh, uh, write a review on a beer last night, and I'm looking for it right now. It was a double dry hopped IPA from a brewery here in Illinois called Microphone. I can't remember if I've reviewed reviewed a Microphone beer on this show before, but Microphone has carved themselves out with a very nice presence here in the Illinois craft brewery market for good reason. Their product is fantastic. So I had a beer called Shimmy Shimmy Ya, and I reviewed Shimmy Shimmy Ya with a 3.75 stars out of the five-star scale, and I was able to add a picture, and adding a location wouldn't have been fun because I was at home, and uh, got to add crisp clear and very drinkable and that was it okay yeah yeah one of the things that i'm really impressed by with untapped is just how wide the scope is i really do not think that there's a brewery in north america that is not here on this app no it doesn't pay not to be you know not everybody pays attention to untapped but those who do that's a lot of where they get their information as to what breweries to go to. So if oh, you're a hundred percent, yeah, you know, you're in there. And plus, I, I don't think we'd have to confirm because I know the monkeys are in it. I don't think they charge to be part of Untapped. That is a great question. I don't think I, I don't think they do either. I, I mean, yeah. I would compare that to like a restaurant showing up on an app like Yelp. What? Is Yelp going out and collecting money from every restaurant that they list on their app? That's kind of ridiculous. I, I would see that the same way with, with Untapped. Yeah, but that said, the reason that Yelp doesn't do that is because they have ads in their um, in their in their app and on their website. Untapped doesn't do that. So the question becomes how do they make their money? So that's an interesting thing that I don't think that I've ever is an interesting question. To. Okay, all right. I, I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna ask some questions about this. I, this I want to know because okay. you're right. Very I'm cool. scrolling through this right now. I'm not seeing ads anywhere. You're right. No. Yeah. So that does that means we're not the product. So who is? You know. True. That's the question. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. More to come. Um. What else? What else? What else? What else? So a couple things came up. Um, this one is kind of related to untapped, but it's a bit of a heavier topic. And then we did get a suggestion on a topic from my lovely wife that we can go over. Uh, Jason, I think you know. Oh, we just dive in. We're just, we're just diving well, right unless in. Unless you had something else to, to go over. No, no, I don't. Right, no, let's, so yeah, let's, let's go, go with for the it. slightly less heavy one first. Hannah mentioned to me, she said, I got a topic for you. Why are bottles <laughs> shaped that way? And she, she of course, meant beer bottles and soda bottles and things like that. And I 
shook my head because I was like, I should know this. I should be curious about this, but I'm not. It's just that's how bottles are shaped. Why are you asking this question? <laughs> <laughs> so I turn to my cohort here working for a packaging company and said, hey, why are bottles shaped this way? And you <laughs> took it from there, sir. I did. I did. So uh, I did not have an immediate response to said question. So I um, went to resources within my company slash um, craft beer community. And I was able to get quite a... I got quite a deep, quite a deep answer. So, anyways, to color in okay. what I did. So, being that I did not have the answer to this, um, I went to a resource within my company who also is a home brewer. He also is within uh, within my company has the title of director of quality management, and his role in the company is heavily geared towards engineering type topics and also coming in and doing some very complicated analysis when things go bad uh, on a filling line or um, with a or with a uh, bottle manufacturing plant so he's an extremely smart guy way smarter than me and his his knowledge of these topics is really proved to be very deep so anyways I sent him an email and said, "Hey, I got a question for you. Hey, can I can I steal a few minutes of your time?" And he said, "Yeah, you know, stop by this afternoon." So I went to a supply closet, pulled out a twelve ounce amber bottle, which is the bottle that George was referring to earlier, with not giving him any heads up about what I was prepared to ask him. So I just showed up in his office, took a seat in front of him, and I dropped said bottle right on his desk, and and I said to him, "Why is a beer bottle shaped like that?" And he said, oh, shit, okay. <laughs> so we, and we got into actually what turned into be a very cool conversation. And in just throughout maybe 15 or 20 minutes, we broke, we, we broke the reasons down within three categories. And I'll start with these three categories. Number one is economic. Number two is ergonomic. And then three is technical requirements. So we'll, we'll go through these bullet point by bullet point, starting with economic. The uh, the one of the features of the twelve ounce bottle is the curve from the base of the bottle to the neck. This makes the bottle more friendly to stress. So basically, if you did not have that curve that forms the uh, the neck and up to the mouth, you basically just have a straight cylinder of glass, which would not be resistant, would not be very resistant to you know the occasional just kind of clanging of glasses or accidentally hitting anything that's nearby. So that and that makes that, that makes a degree of, of sense. I, I, I understand what that uh, what that means. It also makes it more friendly to uh, things like uh, CO2 pressure and uh, you know the friction that a bottle goes through when it's going through a uh, through a filling line. So that's that's the economic piece. Ready okay. for ergonomic? Ready. Okay. All right. Ergonomic. It fits in your hand really nicely in the shape that it is. Just holding a 12 ounce amber, you know, amber bottle with the wide part at the base fits really well in in just any regular regular hand. Second of all is ease of pouring. Again, go, going from a you know wider base through a more narrow neck makes pouring very very simple and very smooth. Um, it would be, I mean, can you imagine pouring uh, pouring beer out of like a 
like a water glass where you didn't have the um, you know the the, the narrowing uh, up at the neck, you wouldn't be you would lose your pressure immediately to, and just end up oxidizing the beer if you if you ended up doing that. So that yeah. makes you know that makes that makes sense as well. It does, right. and, and it also probably would like kind of um, back backdraft is the wrong word, but it's kind of the thing that he's like sucking a lot of oxygen when you took the cap off and create a lot of foam real quick. So that makes exactly. sense. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So um, now we're down to the last bullet point on uh, technical requirements. And I am much less of a technical guy than George is, so I'm going to do my best here. Um, the taper, which makes the neck of the bottle, um, that reflects the nature of mold construction. So every um, every glass bottle just starts with, it's, it's a... Um, it's a manufactured mold that ends up uh, creating the form that the bottle takes. And going from wide to narrow is just the nature of a mold construction. Now, if you think about it, if you, if you just think about what would it take to build a bottle from narrow to wide, it just, from an engineering uh, standpoint, just doesn't make sense and is not possible. That's just not how, thing, not how things are made. Um, and then the last part is, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I missed one part of economic. Um, the uh, shape of the bottle does not promote rapid dissolution of beer's carbonation. Well, can you put a finer point on that? No. No. Is that, okay. <laughs> See, this is where, this is where my, uh, my engineering knowledge kind of, kind of fails me. Um, okay. I think, you, you, know, you know what? No, I, I think I do. Okay, let's reset. I think what that means is if you if you drank beer out of an open cylinder, that's a lot of um, that's a lot of oxygen that uh, beer is exposed to. How how long do you think a beer is going to remain carbonated in that type of setting versus in a bottle that has curvature in it and is less exposed than to to open air? Okay, so that makes sense. So because it's a small opening, not only does it not foam up you know as soon as it hits oxygen it also gets exposed to less oxygen and thus has a better chance of staying that kind of fizzy carbonated rather than just carbonated like that kind of fizzy carbonated to the uh throughout the whole drinking process exactly so that was a really fun conversation that i that i had and a question that i wouldn't have posed if um if this didn't uh, didn't come up just uh, between uh, between the three of us, so that was a very cool conversation, and I give a special thank you to uh, to Brian out there from a um, do I mention competing beer clubs on this show uh, from Urban Knaves of Grain um, for uh, for his help on that. Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate it. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I mean, yeah. just, they're they're competing, but yeah, they're in different region. It's okay. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> JBG. Yes, of course, JBG. <laughs> all right. That's all right. There's the bottle shape. So that's interesting. So it's more than just that's the shape that they, it sounds like there's some actual science and technology that has gone into that because they have definitely changed shape over the years. So what, one of the things that he he had mentioned, and I had almost forgotten about this, was do you remember a couple of years ago Budweiser came out with a vortex shaped uh, bottleneck? 
Yeah, it was kind of rifled. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and the thought behind that was a smoother, more tap-like pour. And if I remember correctly, I think that I think that was only on the market for like a year or something. Is that right? Yeah, I was kind of wondered how much of that was marketing nonsense and how much of that was reality. You know, I would imagine just based on that conversation that the beer ended up having so much uh, issues with remaining carbonated, you know, for, you know, for an ideal amount of time that that may have been the reason that got taken off. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. There you have it. So in case you were wondering, that's why bottles are shaped that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now said, uh, said controversial topic. Said heavy topic, yeah. All right. Um, so I was kicking around on Untapped and looking at some industry stuff and Twitter and places, and one of the things that I saw a bunch of was the idea that craft brewing in particular has two things that it has a problem with. Number one is the way is 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 racial and uh and sexual diversity in other words there's a lot of white males that are uh running beer places yeah and the concept of gentrification that craft breweries are being uh, um are being accused of contributing to gentrification of areas to where the local populace is not able it's it's raising the the cost of living in that area and it's uh and the the local people are not benefiting from the uh, establishment of that business so you know i thought about it for a while and you know a couple things ran through my head and you know i can see a bunch of different sides on this but you know a couple things were somewhat obvious to me on the forefront. Just like any business where you have a large OPEX expenditure, in other words, a lot of, you need a lot of capital to get started, it does tend towards a demographic that has access to or has the money to get started. Or I guess that's not OPEX, that's CapEx, isn't it? Um, but the, but either way, it has a lot of capital to get started and that in the demographics of the U S is going to trend more towards, um, the white demographic and it's going to, and, and, and for a number of different reasons is going to trend towards men as well. Um, I think the male part of that is probably equally down to the fact that it's a more beer tends to be a more guy centric thing. Um, That's not to say by any stretch of the mind that women aren't uh, welcome in the, in the hobby or in the, in, in the craft or anything like that. I, I don't see that as a thing, but you know, it does tend to be a more guy centric thing. Um, but you know, for the white demographic that that is where a lot of that large amount of capital that we talked about is centered 
In other words, you're not going to find as many minorities with a, access to that kind of capital to be able to open those businesses. Jason, do you think that's a fair thing to say? It it probably is. I'm right now. I'm I'm trying to piece together. You know where where are the problems that you know this that this ends up creating? Um, so yeah. So no, go ahead. Just I mean, just kind of thinking out out loud on this for for a second. Um, your points are very valid that this is a guy centric industry, which I don't think is I don't think is so much a negative thing in itself. I don't think it's so. I don't think it's so catered to one demographic so much as it's just concentrated in one. You right. find many different examples with other groups out there. Um, so I don't think it's hard for me to say that that's inherently a, a negative thing. Well, uh, I'm, I, I, I think not, it's I, I think it's deeper to talk about, you know, where where is this creating problems for, you know, for people out, you know, outside of that group? Sure. And I don't think it, as long as it's not actively discouraging or as long as it's 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 just centered in and not catered towards like you were saying, I think you're right. I think that it's not necessarily a bad thing for guys to have something that is guy centric. There's a lot of things sure. that are women centric. That's not a, necessarily a bad thing. But I do think the attitude towards it is much more accepting of women today than it was say back in the 90s because think of the ridiculous beer commercials back in the 90s <laughs> and it was all well, scantily clad women and male power fantasy and all that stuff that's not a very open and accepting you know atmosphere for women well but, you're, you're right about that but here, this is an important thing as well um, the landscape of places that you can go is totally different today than it was like back in the late 90s for sure being, Absolutely. being that there's not there's not craft breweries you know widely available like they are today back in those days and also, honestly i think and, that's and here's, what's go ahead okay so but here but here's another important thing how many how many stories are out there in among you know and with people we know from i mean Go back as far as the '90s, but it's it's true for today as well as the the early 2000s. How many people have stories about women being treated horrifically in bars? I mm-hmm. mean, the, the stories are endless. The, I mean, I can tell you right now, I've not heard a single story about a woman being treated that way in a brewery. I would I would not hesitate to say that that's been a much friendlier warmer environment for a female group than any bar atmosphere has ever been yeah i have heard some stories uh of women being harassed as as employees as as well as as customers Mm -hmm. and 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 i'm not sure to put that down to the beer scene or just the fact that we as society are still working on our you know relations between the sexes Um, yeah but but i i i understand what you're saying is like a craft beer tap room is a different vibe different atmosphere than a bar than a mass market bar and you know so yeah i would hope now we're two dudes saying we think it's good for women in <laughs> in craft breweries. So please tell us if we're wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, 
I would I would hope, and if I had a craft brewery, I would hope that I would try to make it as open and accepting to anybody that walked in that door as possible. You know, and I think Agreed. a lot of craft brewery owners feel that way. You know? I think they do, so. and I think and I think that um, I think that shows itself in the fact that you don't have stories. Uh, you know that you don't have quote-unquote bar-type stories, at least nearly to the degree that bars do surrounding craft breweries. Because I do think, I mean, you're right. I mean, you said it very well when you said the vibe is completely different at those places than than regular bars. And I think that contributes to a warmer, healthier atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, one would hope. And I think it'd be an honestly an interesting question for some of our friends that do own breweries. Um, have they seen anything like that happening at their brewery? Agreed. So maybe we'll have some of those conversations and, you know, we won't necessarily give their name out if they don't want to or anything like that of, you know, have they seen any, anything of that going on? And if they did, what did they do about it? You know, because I can think of, I can think of a couple of our friends that would react very poorly to uh, uh, someone being harassed in their bar. And I don't mean towards the person being harassed. I mean towards the harasser. <laughs> I yeah. can think of a couple yeah. of our friends that would <laughs> that would not be, uh, would not have that in their establishment, if you know who I'm thinking of. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, actually, tell me off mic exactly, because I'm not totally sure who you're, who you're referencing, but I do want to okay. know. Okay, yeah, not a problem. But here's, here's a similar story, and, and this is, um, um, we're move. this is a step away from the, from the gender topic and more towards a race, towards a racial topic, topic, but sure. I think it is, I think it is telling, and I think there is, um, I think there's a theme that crosses both areas. Um, one of the breweries that we know, uh, within the last, two years had a racially uh racially charged event happen at their at their said brewery um yeah and now was it before you go into it too much was it perpetrated by the brewery or did it no it was no it was perpetrated by by a customer okay um i don't think uh I'll, i'll i'll tell the whole story um Within the brewery, there's areas to de- to decorate with chalk, and you know, say you know, just you know, throw out quotes or hellos or or anything like that that can, that kind of comes to mind. Well, one um, said customer took said chalk and um, and put up a Nazi symbol. Ugh. And yeah, exactly. So, and the brewery immediately addressed it. They went to social media and said, "Whoever this was, your business is not welcome here anymore." Good for them. Yeah. Honestly, good for them. Yeah, it was it was the right thing to do. I think they handled it in a very healthy, you know, healthy way. Fortunately, it wasn't, you know, they didn't vandalize the place and didn't have to like clear spray paint or anything like that. I mean, chalk fortunately is is removed very easily. So, you know that part wasn't an issue, but um, 
the 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 owners you know saw their you know thought you know thought well of their establishment and knew exactly what this would reflect on them and they addressed it in the you know the healthiest way that they could they said um this is you know we are not you know we're not by any means a you know racially divisive entity um we want no part of uh being seen in any light that would that would make us look that way and by the way your business is not welcome here anymore good yeah no that's a good response and it's absolutely is yeah, and that's the kind of thing you would hope to see out of there. But, you know, so then it kind of, you have that whole sexual and, and racial, uh, di- you know, dichotomy there. But in every craft brewery I can think of where we know the owners, it's white guys. And that's, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm not here saying that that's necessarily a bad thing because it's not their fault that they're white guys. They wanted to open up a business and, and could and did. But the question becomes, is there the opportunity if a couple of black guys wanted to get together or, 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 or a couple, uh, a, gr- a group of women wanted to get together? Is this, is there the same opportunity for them to be able to do that? And maybe I maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but I feel like that would be really warmly received. Well, I would think people would see that and be like, that is so cool. Yes, I absolutely want to try that. Right. Well, I mean, there's there would definitely be uh, I mean, there would definitely be some people that would definitely gravitate towards that. But again, we go back to the and I think this is where the question comes from, because, you know, you look at it on its face and be like, of course, open your business. Who cares? You know, absolutely. Do your thing. But it goes back to the question of, do they have the ability to do so? And uh, and I'm not sitting here trying to say that just because somebody is black or a woman doesn't mean they don't have capital, doesn't mean they can't open a business or anything like that. But the demographics and everything do kind of go towards it's more likely that they're they're not going to be able to. So the the, the question becomes how much responsibility does the craft brew industry itself bear towards a possible correction of that and and to be able to give those people a leg up that would contribute to the craft beer scene and 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 you know make it you bring in those new ideas, bring in, bring in those new viewpoints and everything, and, and be, maybe be able to extend craft beer to new areas. You know, how much responsibility does craft brew have to being able to do that? That's a, t- that's a tough question. Yeah. I agree. That is a tough question. You know, and I think there's a lot of things that could be done. You know, because I think that there's a lot of people that have good ideas, have the talent, and can open up and could, if they had the the resources and the ability to, could open up a, uh, a successful business, a successful craft brewery that aren't doing it today because they can't, because they don't have access to that that kind of those kinds of resources. Would you say that's probably so- accurate? I do. I, I, I do think that's accurate. Does the question ultimately fall down to: Is the craft beer industry itself responsible for its level of diversity? Well, and that's the question being asked of a lot of industries right now. 
you know, because no matter which industry you're looking at, it's most likely dominated by white guys. You know, so many are, yeah. many are. No, this, there's no doubt. Yeah. So, and and let's let's be honest here. This country is dominated by white guys. So at some level, that's just down to demographics. You know, because white people are still the majority. Men to <laughs> make up fifty percent of the population. <laughs> Therefore, okay. you know, it's um, but it's, you know, it, it becomes the thing of is that just down to demographics? Is that just down to this is the or, or is there a larger, more systemic thing that's maybe keeping people out of the industry or because of historical wealth and things like that concentrated there? Is that creating a an issue where people are not able to break into the industry you see where i'm going with that yeah so i mean i i feel i feel like i've reached the point that being that this is two white guys talking about this i i feel like our our scope is limited somewhat too limited to address this maybe as appropriately as it should absolutely and and so this is I, where I, I definitely this is where I'd, i definitely go ahead I I'm not going to go too deep with this but I I struggle with hearing statements like systemic limitations like I heard you mention earlier mm-hmm. um but then again I I am who I am you know I am I am part of said white male majority and I I just Without living that experience of somebody who's who's not that, I'm not the ultimate authority on that. Agreed. And, so, and think about it this way too: you and I are in a position where we, because if I'm speaking for you inappropriately, tell me. But I think this is how you would feel about it too. I mean, you're in finance. If someone came to you and they had the 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 means and the um, ability to say pay back a loan for to start a business it wouldn't matter to you what gender they were what the color of their skin was you know it would be is this economically viable is do they have a good product can they get to the market you know there would be those questions right the answer is yes across the board to all of the, course. to all those things. But there is and, and still also, people. And also, I mean, we've had law. We've had laws in this country. There's we've had laws in this country for generations now that that protect that. Agreed. You know, but there is still it's, people it's, it's, that it's, are it's absolutely that. You it, know. Okay. All right. And and I think that and so the question is, what is the percentage of those people that are still shitty that would create those roadblocks that you and I don't see because we're, we wouldn't have those roadblocks thrown up like in front of us. You know what? Here's a thought that just came into my head as well. Um, there's probably something to be said about how or, or what reality is with this in an urban environment versus a more suburban, less urban environment, I'll say. Okay. So I, I wonder. There's probably something to, to be to be said about that. And as far as like opening a business in that environment, or yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, that raises a couple interesting questions because I think where you're going with that is that you is people tend to want to open a business near where they live, right? 
No, no. not so, not so much that. Okay. But I mean, th- think of if you wanted to open up a brewery in, um, you know, in, on the near north side of Chicago, which is a very, um, you know, a very urban, uh, urban market that you're, that you're catering to. Well, that has that has a certain vibe in the overall area and in the business environment that is is very fitting with what we attribute to a craft brewery. Mm-hmm. If said person wanted to open the same brewery in, say, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, that's a whole different world, and that would be perceived in probably a very different way than than it would be at the at the first location in in Chicago. Sure, absolutely. So, so I mean, being that those environments are different, the um, landscapes are different, the customer base is different, and also the attitudes are going to be different towards who the owners are, what, you know, what they're about and what it is that they are, that they set out to do. Okay. So I see what you're saying. So theoretically in that Chicago location, it's going to be more open towards minority ownership and things like that versus Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Is that, I mean, is that kind of where you're going? Yes. Okay. And there's, and there's probably a lot of truth to that. And, you know, you would, you would hope at least there would be a lot of, well, I mean, on that you'd hope that they would be open to it no matter where they are because people shouldn't be shitty. But, you know. But reality is that, I mean, people in different environments act differently. Of course. And they're brought up differently. That's just reality. It doesn't make it right or wrong. It's reality. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is reality. And, uh, but, you know, I think we can both say that if you're discriminating against people, that's wrong. You know, and I, a hundred percent, a hundred And listen, listen, you and I, I mean, based on how old we are and where, where we grew up, I mean, we have very much the makeup that we should not and have no excuse to be shitty people. No question about right. it. Does that, I mean, but it's at the same time, does every single person fit that mold where they have the makeup to not be shitty? And that, and that's I'm getting into a whole other topic by talking about this. But there's something to be there said. There's something about to be that. said about it. But you're getting into a whole other topic about what's to be done about it and things like that. And that, that's in that. Yeah, side. exactly. But I think I think there is relevance to that topic because you know one of the core questions that we talked about when we when we brought up this topic is what is the craft brewery industry's responsibility for its own diversity? Right. Yeah. Well, and so that kind of raises some, you know, some possible solutions here of, you know, the craft brewers association is a pretty large association. And I don't know if they already have programs like this. Shame on me. I should have looked it up before we started this, but you know, they could easily have like minority grant minority owned business grant and loan programs and back and, and 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 you know being able to back them in getting those from banks and things like that to be able to you know leverage that their stake in the industry and their size in the industry to be able to uh you know bridge that gap and yeah, you know, so it's you're totally right. We should we should have looked that up, and that's my fault. Before before I cut this together, we we need to we need to both read up yeah. on this and and uh, and find out what indeed is happening at this well, point on that. Front. Well, and so this is, I mean, to to an earlier point that you made is, you know, we're two white guys here talking about this, and you know, I wanted to bring up the topic and talk about it, but I know this isn't the last time we can and should talk about this, and and we need to bring in other voices, and we need to bring in people that are smarter about this like maybe from the craft beer association and from 
you know, uh, minority owned craft breweries, like what were their challenges and things like that to, to be able to speak to this. Um, but, you know, so let's take a look at this. Let's take a step back for a second and look at this from a larger perspective of does craft beer as an industry bear a responsibility towards this? Because we kind of circled right. this a little bit. And I think just because I want to see as much good ideas and as much talent, be it black, white, Asian, Indian, doesn't matter. I want to see as much talent in the industry to be able to get the next beer innovation like Brute IPA, like... Um, uh, unfortunately, well, I'm not, I don't even want to call this an innovation, but somebody came up with the idea of hard seltzer, you know, and, and things like that. You know, I, I want those <laughs> kinds of innovations, not hard seltzer, but uh, better innovations to be in the industry and bringing in more voices to that will have a positive net benefit in that in the long run. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that all that talent and and thought will come from minority sources but it may very well be there so i think we need to bring in as many people as we can so i think it would i don't know if they necessarily bear a responsibility but i think it would be in the best interest of the craft beer industry to bring in those voices to bring in those thoughts and to bring in those people into the industry no i i think your points are, are very very valid um There, there's certainly, I mean, new and good ideas, you know, should be should be welcomed in in all industries, in, in, including this. Um, I had a, had a thought and I lost it. It's okay. This is a tough topic. <laughs> to be honest, I thought I um, this actually went a lot deeper than I thought it would. Well, I mean, this is this is something that is kind of near and dear to my heart and you know tip in my tip in my hand a little bit my brother-in-law and sister own a minority owned business it's not a craft brewery but it is a minority owned business in florida and there were certain benefits and drawbacks to that um when they were setting it up um now my brother-in-law is a super resourceful guy so he was able to break in with um, without a uh, a whole ton of you know s you know super loan capital needed or anything like that to the industry that he that he did, but he did experience some uh, kickback being being a black guy in in Florida, you know, trying to open up a, a, a business, and you know there was certain mm -hmm. things that you know was kind of a bit of a holdback. And that's it. But at the same time, there were certain benefits too. My sister is part of the business. And so that makes it technically a female owned business as well, which gets you certain grants and uh, ability to access loans and things like that, that you can't as a um, majority male owned business, like say you and I would open up. So that, mm -hmm. I mean, that, sure. that is, there's, there, there are those benefits that, that come into play there and those can't be overlooked. Those are, 
those are there for a reason and uh and they can and did take advantage of that because they should you know and um but you know i mean this is the biggest drawback is is really that social thing and of can i trust this person is this the person i want to do business with and things like that and again my brother-in-law's a rock yeah. star and I, he's super personable and everybody loves him and that's great um but i'm sure he encountered some of that as well it makes me sad whenever i hear stories like that because i i mean i know your brother-in-law as well and he's a very good yeah. man and i've I certainly am very happy to hear that he's found the success that he that he has. Um, I just I know I'm over idealizing this, but I I really just want to believe that this kind of crap just doesn't happen anymore. But reality is, it yeah. does. Yeah, I mean, it, we, 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 I just I, I mean, it's difficult for me to understand exactly. I mean, what does you know what is what is the world's responsibility to counteract that? Well, and what and is the? I, I, I feel like I feel like that's a question that's just too big for my small brain. <laughs> and mine. No, I mean that sincerely. I, this, this is one of those one of those topics that makes me glad that I'm not a politician and I don't work at City Hall. Yeah, because uh, I don't I don't have answers on I'm this. I'm with you. And the other part of it too is it just doesn't make a damn lick of sense from a financial perspective or anything like that. Like if someone comes to you. They have a good business. They have good backing. They have good economic prospects. They have a good market. They have a good product. Why would you let something as superficial as race or gender get in the way of doing business with them? A hundred percent. And again, it goes back to what I was saying. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, why? I mean, in this day and age, that should not be happening. Plain and simple. It just shouldn't. If all things are all things are equal, you have a great business opportunity, and somebody in front of you who you who's who's proven very capable to do you know what they're what they're set out to do, then the decision should be I mean should be instantaneous. Yeah. That's it. Do your job. <laughs> yeah, that's it. yeah. Financial it's, people. Do your job. You know. <laughs> so that's you know I mean so so yeah so that's the world that I think you and I would want to live in. And want to believe yeah. we can get to and things, and, and and so let's say that let's let's set that aside for a second because the other half of this is the concept of gentrification, which at a high level, for those of you guys that may or may not be familiar, is the idea that a business will go into an area and exploit that area basically and raise the cost of living and raise the resource costs in that area to the point where the people that live there can no longer afford to live there um see this is what i was prepared to discuss <laughs> when you when we talked about this off air i got a page of notes talking okay. talk about this specifically okay, and that's fair uh but i think the first conversation needed to have happen for this one to, yeah, yeah so but Okay. So yeah, so that's the concept of gentrification, and so a lot of craft breweries have been accused of doing that because a lot of the places that craft breweries like to set up are in uh, industrial parks, in places where they can get a large warehouse type area for a low amount of money, and there's a certain economic sense that that makes of you want to be able to maximize your 
profits and minimize your costs. Um, but I think sometimes what happens in that area is they come in and set up these warehouses and uh, of breweries and things, ship the product out, take the money out of that um, area, that economic area. So that economic area bears the burden of that thing existing, but doesn't see the benefits of it. And that's the kind of the concept of gentrification and why people are against them setting up in that area. So then it comes back to the question of, okay, great, this thing is happening. Is that the fault of craft breweries? Is that and what responsibility does the craft brewery bear to an area being gentrified in that way? I think so. This is a this is a social responsibility issue at you know at its core. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something to be said about you know the actual intention is is the craft brewery. Uh, are they going into this with the mentality that they can exploit an area based on based on a low overhead cost, or is this just simply a product of this is the only um, sensible way that they could do business? Now, back to what you were saying earlier about the large capex required for uh, to run a brewery, which is very true. Uh, running a brewery is not a cheap business to run. There's a lot. There's a lot of fixed assets that are that are required to do so, yeah. um, and, and the reality is, you know, not every brewery owner is a guy who works on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. You know, I know there's a perception that you know that, that business owners all fit that mold, and that's simply not true. A lot of you know, there's a lot of people in craft brewery that are just you know that are just bootstrap guys that raise just enough money to keep the doors open, and when things get tight, you know they have they have nothing to fall back on. Right. So I mean that that really does run counter to the common perception of of you know the true resources that that businesses and business owners have at their at their disposal. Um, one of the things that I want to put on the table about this, because I, I, I feel like I feel like these things are these two uh, fundamentals are important for this topic. So I took a class class in business ethics three years ago when I was studying for my CPA exam. This was a requirement to sit for the CPAs. You have to have to pass this um, uh, pass this course. I did not have an issue passing, just in case anyone's <laughs> anyone's concerned about that. Um, but I want to introduce two uh, two different uh, theories that I think are relevant here. Um, there's a uh, there's a renowned econo- uh, economist uh, from the past generation named Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman coined uh, a theory that's referred to as shareholder theory. And there's a famous there's a quote that he's well known for, and I tried to find this quote before uh, before the show, and I just couldn't find it. I'm gonna para this is this is paraphrased. I'm not gonna get this 100 percent right, but you'll get the theme mm-hmm. of it. The quote is: "Human beings are driven to act in their own self interest," and what this ultimately means is it's the business's responsibility to serve the needs of their shareholders, and that is it. It's not the responsibility of a business to be socially responsible, and it's in the reason for that is because you end up uh, you end up catering to multiple parties, and you end up failing the other by doing so. A business's interest is strictly to serve the shareholders, and that's it. It's a bit of a controversial theory, but um, it's it's one that's widely talked about, and it's also largely fo- uh, given a basis for. 
um, certain uh, like libertarian political beliefs. You can you can see where a lot oh, of, of common grounds are yeah. from there. Yeah. So here's a second one, and, and this is uh, this is a bit of a gentler. Uh, it's a move in a more gentle direction than than said shareholder theory, and it's interesting because the uh, the professor that I'm going to talk about here just happens to be over there at the University of Virginia, right over by you. I'm talking about a theorist named Edward Freeman. And Edward Freeman is the founder of what's referred to as stakeholder theory. Now, stakeholder theory is largely kind of an evolution of of shareholder theory that we mentioned earlier. But stakeholder theory believes that it's the business's responsibility to serve any person who can claim to be a stakeholder in the business. Now, that, that, that's true for shareholders. That's true for customers. That's true for the community uh, surrounding them and any, any other application. Yeah. So I think, I think that's very relevant because it does form the question of just what is the purpose of business and who, is a, who, are, there, who, are, who are they ultimately responsi- re- responsible to cater to? And it's not an easy question. You know, I mean, there's, you know, you can argue, in, you know, in, in both directions very strongly. You can. Uh, um, you know, Machiavelli gets, all, you know, is, is misunderstood in a lot of ways. Um, but in the way people, most people understand Machiavellian theory and, and philosophy, shareholder theory is much more of that kind of ruthless, you know, do do what you need to and damn everybody else kind of thing and it can be perceived yeah i mean it 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 absolutely is to me uh you know i don't know and and so the then but the the question becomes when you talk about stakeholder theory um is how far does that extend because you if you extend that to the local area around a business that has a stake in that business's success then you start to form the basis of, all right, am I being socially conscious? Am I being aware of the local, uh, the local people and making sure they have opportunity based on this business? Am I, you know, uh, am I also taking care of my workers, my shareholders and things like that? And there's a lot of things to think about there. And that kind of runs contrary to the whole shareholder, uh, original theory there. But, you know, it's it's one of those things because it's not exactly a false dichotomy. If you take care of your local area, it they they will reinvest into your business, either socially or, or economically. They will, you know, if you have a business, it's the reason why, and this is a terrible example because they just took advantage of areas. But back in the 40s, 50, 40s 50s area, era, um, and I was just reading about uh, this book that is super interesting uh, called The Hillbilly Elegy. And um, <laughs> it's, it's this guy comes from uh, it's it, I'm not going to spoil it. It's it's a super interesting book for anybody that's looking for, uh, you know, a take on Americana that you have never seen before. Um, but there was, you know, those steel companies in towns that you know back in the 40s and 30s 40s and 50s they took care of their local community they would build parks they would um you know fund the school they would you know do all this stuff and it basically it kind of had and the reason why i'm a little bit torn about it is because 
it kind of turned into a little bit of a company town kind of atmosphere. Uh, and as you went through the years, it became less and less exploitative in that way to where people got locked into the company. But in, it became a little bit more altruistic uh, kind of naturally until the steel industry started dying out. And then that was a whole thing because without that single industry supporting the town, towns started to die. That's a whole other thing. But what I'm saying is that altruistic philosophy of if you take care of the local area, the local area will take care of you can be very applicable to the craft brew industry. So that begs the question about what, you know, how many examples are there of said craft brewery that's, you know, takes up shop in a less economically built up area? What benefits does that area realize from the fact that that brewery is there? Right. And I, or or what's the flip side? I mean, what's I mean, what are the negative implications of you know of that? Uh, I know when we introduced this topic, we talked about the idea that um, increased traffic to the area would you know theoretically drive up um, uh, cost of living mm-hmm. um, values and, and create like the roads and if, things like that potentially yeah. Pot- potentially yeah. yeah. Um, it's hard for me to imagine though that. Um, that paints the entire picture about what craft breweries contribute to the communities they take up shop in. Well, but and so you end, so you end up just having to having to see those side by side and say, what you know is there is the ultimate outcome here negative for the community or is it positive for the community? I think that depends entirely on the business. I don't think we can say that craft brewery as a whole is bad or good for the local area when it sets up shop. No, I, I, I agree 100%. Every, every brewery is going to have its own story right. of that. And I think those ones that open up tap rooms that, um, you, know, you know, are more engaged in the local area are probably, and again, I'm, you know, I'm going to defer to some people that have more experience with this, but are probably better for the area and end up bringing more opportunity to the area than those that just set up a brewery that ships out to grocery stores or to other tap rooms in other, say, more affluent areas. You know what I'm saying? So I think that that probably, you know, there is a certain level of, I mean, I'll go as far as to say responsibility that a business has to not just take from an area, not just exploit an area and say okay well this is cheap warehousing i'm gonna brew here but i'm gonna serve my product over here where i can get a higher dollar value for it you know i mean that makes economic sense but it's a shitty thing to do and i think more and more businesses are balancing those two things of not just being ruthlessly economic there's so much politics involved with alcohol specifically that I would think that it becomes a quite difficult for a business like a brewery where there's as much red tape and as much politics around just its normal operation mm-hmm. to not have those types of community contributions. Yeah. Maybe I'm oversimplifying that, but I do think there's something to be said about Agreed. that. I mean, breweries are taxed heavily, oh, yeah. heavily, you know, just because of the product that they sell. So I mean, right there. I mean, that added that added revenue has a positive contribution. So on the long community. as it's going at least into it the should. community, 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Well, I mean, it's it's taxes. Well, but okay. So let's scale this up a little bit. So I think when we're talking about craft breweries, I'm thinking about people like Metal Monkey and uh, Microphone and Will County and places like that, right? Sure. But we have to remember that technically Lagunitas, Sam Adams, uh, Goose Island, yeah. all these are craft breweries technically. So Lagunitas just yeah. set up that warehouse, just, you know, a couple years ago, set up that warehouse outside of Chicago. Is that a good thing for that area? Of course it is. Is it? I don't know. I mean, I know they do. Of course it is. Here, 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 here's here, yeah. well, here, here's here's why. Okay, oh, go ahead. Can, yeah, can yeah, I dive, dive in. into this? Okay, number one, they did not build that facility that they were in. Um, that was an empty warehouse that was left behind by a steel company that had been in business for a hundred years and then changed ownership, and then they ended up closing an entire property. So, if Lagunitas had not moved into that building. You'd be sitting on, you know, an eyesore of an empty warehouse, you know, located in uh, on the west side of Chicago. That's number one. Number two is they were able to create a crap ton of jobs to run that facility. Um, they invested in a whole bunch of capital expenditures. They they created jobs for people. Um and they've been able to contribute to the business's bottom line because that said Lagunitas warehouse services the entire country uh, west, or no, I'm sorry, east of the Rocky Mountains. Right, yeah. The, yeah. Business, the, the business location made sense on a number of levels because, number one, they didn't have to build a facility. It, the, the building itself was big enough that they could move right into. Second of all was the proximity to Lake Michigan because they needed, they needed a, a clear source of water to, to make said product. So that you know that those were two of the big bigger factors that that drove that decision right there, and also they're paying a crapload in taxes because that's the way the alcohol business works. You know, there, there's a there's a sin tax attached to every single product, and all of the, all of that money is going into you know whatever the you know whatever the uh, eight you know the local who's ever. Whatever level of government is is collecting that that tax, I don't know if it's the city or the county or the state. Sorry, I don't know. But you know, I mean, how do you argue that? I mean, those are. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, and those are all good points. And in my only, and I don't know whether or not this is true, but I say that all of those are really great points, so long as the workers that come from that area, uh, that 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 work there aren't imports they come from that area you know and 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 that they didn't when they went in because Lagunitas, Lagunitas is big enough that they might have said to Chicago give us a tax break and we'll come in and do this so maybe they're not being taxed as heavily as I mean think about what Walmart or not, not Walmart but Amazon was trying to do in New York yeah you know get those yeah. sweetheart tax credits and things so I mean there's the potential for that to be really good and that's why I posed it the way I did I don't know that it's necessarily good or bad I know Lagunitas beer is bad <laughs> but I don't know if that being there is necessarily good or bad but you know it doesn't necessarily be it's uh, without knowing the details of that it could be one or the other maybe all of their workers come from naperville and downers grove and maybe they got sweetheart tax deals and the local infrastructure doesn't benefit from those taxes at all you know so i that's 
the kind of thing that I think needs to be taken into account and and should be taken into account when you're looking at is are are people setting up in those areas really a good thing for those areas and that's where the argument for gentrification and exploitation comes yeah that that's a no i i hear where you're going um walmart is the classic example of of a business that oh, just exploits sure. the hell out of their workers, and those store those and stories are very. Are welfare. I, I yeah. and that drives me fucking crazy that that a, that a business yeah. like that can get away with that. That is absolutely disgusting. Um, yeah. I would like, and maybe I'm over idealizing this, but I would like to believe that that is not the norm for business as a whole. And maybe I'm maybe I'm oversimplifying that. Maybe I'm not. I don't know, but I, I just I don't I, I really want to believe that most businesses are not operating that way. I want to believe that too, and I think when you start talking about the mom and pop level, not not even mom and pop, but like the craft brewery, the not the upper echelon of craft brewery, like Sam and Lagunitas and those guys, um, but like the reg the the everything that when you say craft beer everything that comes to mind, those guys, I don't think are operating that way. Like, I don't think Metal Monkey went to Romeoville and said, hey, we need all kinds. Now, Romeoville invested in them and gave them some incentives to come into the area, and I think that's fine. Of course. You know, because those incentives will expire. They they will, you know, that was to help them get started, Mm -hmm. and they will, you know, they are investing in the area they've done multiple things to help with investing in the area and help improve Romeoville. so let's think let's think about how romeoville has has um has been influenced by the fact that metal monkey has been there for now over three years um number Mm -hmm. one metal monkey has paid taxes number two they've created jobs for people probably within the within the vicinity of the area um are they hiring specifically romeoville people maybe maybe not i have no idea but here's a bigger thing. I mean, because they've been a successful business, the businesses in the area have all have um, have all realized a benefit from that as well. You may not think about this, but how many people are leaving Metal Monkey and go eating tacos afterwards? And there's a place you can go right you know right across the street. That added traffic of people that have that that um, Romeoville has seen because people are seeking out Metal Monkey. That added visibility absolutely does have a an effect on the greater uh, business area around them. So sure, absolutely, which is why I'm saying if you have a tap room, if you have a presence in that area, the case for gentrification is less. Uh-huh. But let's say Metal Monkey didn't have a tap room there. Let's say they just had a brewery there, and they had their tap room in Naperville. So they brewed it in Romeoville, then took those kegs <laughs> up to Naperville and opened. That's interesting. You laugh, no, but that's no, what no. Do that's okay. That's an know? interesting point. I, I, I yeah, yeah, What's, and that and that is where that gets exploitative. You know. Hmm. Yeah, I, I gotta I gotta think on that one a little bit. I I don't know of an example of that. I mean, I, I can think of a couple breweries in Chicago that have their um, warehouse location in one place and a tap room on another part of town. Um, but I mean, just off the top of my head, I don't know of a lot. Yeah. And I don't think it's very popular to do, especially when you, like I said, those guys, when you say craft brew, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I I don't think it's very popular for them to do that. Most of them brew and serve in the same place. 
and so that's not as common and when you get up to those bigger guys like i just and i don't and again i don't know if this is true and i hate to keep well i probably shouldn't keep busting on lagunitas but do they have a tap room <laughs> there you know do yes they, they do no they, I've, I've been to it do. yes okay. they do all right okay all right so you know because that if they didn't that's a prime example of that brew it in one place serve it in another you know it's in bars all over chicago but not in the local community fair right? enough and um so and um i don't discriminate against anything except bad beers <laughs> <laughs> fair enough <laughs> no i but the whole case is is I think super interesting and I want to bring in other people. And I know there's been some people that I've been talking to online about this and kind of getting some feedback, which is where some of my comments are coming from. And I, I want to bring in some other people to talk about this. And so when we put this out, this episode out there, I'm going to try to make sure we do, you know, put everything on blast in Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and those places, because I want other voices other opinions other thoughts to come into this from people that i do too are, have been affected by it that are experiencing it and, and what are you what are you seeing out there because jason and i we only have one perspective you know one real perspective on what's going on here we can read about it and things but we have a hard time experiencing it and it's a yeah are we so, are we overthinking I, I, this yeah. or are we underthinking this is there is is there what? a significant systemic issue that's that's really behind behind all this or are are things are things just fine the way they are you know I, this i mean yeah i, I agree i i'm 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 more than ready to have have uh, added dialogue with uh, with other people on this topic yeah. Sure. No, George, thank you for suggesting this. We we really did a deep dive on this and I'm I I feel like we touched on so many very very complicated issues that again, I just don't have the answers for because I'm, you know, as small-minded as I am, but there's they're absolutely relevant and there's there's absolutely conversations to be had about these. So, I guess more to come. I guess I guess that's the the way to way to cap this off I, I honestly hope so and we're we'll get we'll try to do some lighter topics here um but you yeah. know th th these kinds of things are important for us to to talk about mm -hmm. and try to figure out what what is the industry's next steps in what we need to be able to mm -hmm. do uh and you know what responsibility do we bear towards this and 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 i think that it doesn't have to be necessarily a we owe this to somebody but i think at some level it becomes a the industry as a whole would benefit from a greater representation and i'm not and i'm not saying and i know a lot of people that listen to this may have just like you know reeled back a little bit because there's a concept that as long as you have you know minority representation everything's better and that's not necessarily true, but there is a case to be made for if all you have 
is suburban white guys, you're only going to get the suburban white guy opinion. Mm -hmm. And so if you bring in those other thoughts and those other people with, you know, their ideas and things, you're going to get those kinds of innovations that you wouldn't see otherwise. And that is going to be beneficial to the business as a whole. You're going to get, like I said, those innovations like the Brute IPA. You're going to get innovations like, uh, I mean, I can't think of any other examples right now, so I shouldn't have started it that way. But, you know, it, that we wouldn't see otherwise. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Should we take a, yeah. take a breath and... <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So... And let, let me close on this. Okay. Actually. Everybody, you know, thanks for bearing with us this long. Thanks for listening to us. This is the longest this episode we've ever done. Yeah, yeah. And give our, give our opinion on yeah. this. And, you know, I, I, this, like I said, this one's kind of near and dear to my heart. And so if you listen to this and you have an opinion or, you know, somebody who does, and if you've made it this far this. into the episode, <laughs> that's even more that's even more in- incentive yes by all means reach yeah. us on twitter reach us on facebook tell Absolutely. us we're jerks if we said something out of line tell us that if you think we're right on tell us that as well this no, this is you know we we welcome this this topic we welcome all feedback so yeah by all means yeah, let us know sure. yeah and and if you want to come on and talk to us about this and and give a different perspective and tell us how we might be right or wrong on this I'm all for it. Just let reach out to me on Twitter. Let us know on Facebook, uh, Instagram, you know, wherever. And let's let's start a conversation about that. Okay. Good deal. Okay. Can we close out on a lighter note? And Absolutely. are we are we ready to it? transition? Are we are we good? Wait, wait. Hang on. <laughs> do you have a trivia question? Yes, I do. Do you have a trivia question? I do. Oh, sweet. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Um, I have in the past been very generous with you that I have given you four choices with all the trivia questions that I've given you. And I think that should continue. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you do not you do not have said uh said choices for uh for this month's trivia question. All right. Okay. All right. All right. So, um the question is pretty straightforward. What is the US state that has the highest Beer consumed per capita. I guess you got fifty choices because fifty states. So, ah, <laughs> uh, okay. So, if you go on by sheer population, you'd think probably California. But the but the question is per capita. So, oh, per capita. Every, so okay, everyone's on right. a level playing field. So everyone's on a level playing field. Um, so then it goes into. Now, what's the criteria? Is it based on like gallons, liters, dollars? It's gallons, and this is and gallons. remember, this is specifically beer. This is not alcohol as a whole. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about places that might drink more. Um, you know, say American Pilsner, like Bud Lighter things, versus drink more. Uh, high dollar beers. It's all right? it's all on level ground. We're only talking about all volume. Volume. So whether so whether you're drinking um, uh, Sam Adams Utopia or PBR, it's a it's beer. Right. Okay. I'm gonna say 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> I think you're trying to trick me because I just came from there. But my first thought, because it would be ironic, <laughs> is Utah. It is not Utah. That would be hilarious, okay. though. And, 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 and how crazy would that be that, like, the, the state of the U.S. with the most strict alcohol laws is drinking the most beer. That would be amazing. Well, and honestly, that's where my head's at is because when in those areas where you have the more restrictive laws and, and social mores, the more people tend to, you know, rebel against You are them, right about that on many levels, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's not Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go with Texas. Okay. It is not Texas. Damn. I have the top right. three. I don't have what's below the top three, but Texas is not in the top three. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll tease this a little bit. Um, Think less populated. Montana. Not number one. In the top three, but not number one. Okay. Wyoming. Nope. All right. All right, one last guess, and then you can tell me what's going on. Okay. Kansas. Good guess, but no. The answer is North Dakota. No, okay. North Dakota, averaging 43.6 gallons consumed on an annual basis per capita. Okay. Not bad. Way to go! Wait, way, way to go, North North Dakota. So, what what does that equate to? That's like four or five beers a week. Well, forty. Well, five gallons is one hundred twenty. No, no, it's more than that. Oh wow, one gallon is divided by twelve. So that's ten beers. Right. Ten beers times forty three. That's eight. Wow, that's it. Wow, eight beers. Per week, per person, it's a little over one a day. Yeah, that's, that's not, impressive. That's not unachievable. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, go okay. North Dakota. Right. Well done. Rounding out the top three, number two is New Hampshire, and number th- oh, and number three okay. is Montana. Number three. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I imagine if you were doing this review for alcohol consumed as a whole, I think the list would be radically different. Mm, yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking about those less populated areas because when you're talking about per capita things, the statistical outliers are going to affect it more than more populated. Areas. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So, uh, taking that a little further, I do have some country information too. Um, okay. And so this, I guess, the, uh, with a follow-up question, can you think of what country has the highest beer consumption per capita? And I'll, and th- this is interesting because I, I have some numbers to this too. The country with the number one spot has a pretty commanding lead as the number one. Okay, so I'm guessing that the U.S. is not number they one. They are not. Yeah, I'm guessing we're probably a little bit farther down the list. Um pretty commanding lead in it was this alcohol or beer no, this is beer specifically it's beer specifically because so that takes russia out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, um i'll tease this a little bit this uh, 
Okay. Um, I have an answer, but tell me what okay um this country is no stranger to the topic of beer okay well now my answer is different i'm gonna say poland okay good guess but no ah damn all right i mean the the obvious answer is germany germany's up there too but they don't have number one take another crack take take another shot another shot at it yeah all right uh well i'm not sure if it's gonna be listed as england or the united kingdom but i'm gonna say whatever okay all right not that one not that one okay here we go why don't you tell me what's going on the belgium no no the the number one spot goes to the czech republic oh yeah yeah Yeah. all right the home of home of the pilsner yeah. So they have this listed under uh, consumption per capita by liters. And Czech Republic is number one with a rating of 100, uh, 143 liters consumed per capita. That is, that, that's that's going strong. This, the number two European country uh, for beer consumption is Austria. And Austria's, Austria. and Austria's consumption is 106 so the difference between number one and number two is 143 to 106. Wow! So they they got that they got that number strong. Yeah, they yeah. do. Okay. So there you have it. So wait, that was number one and number two, yeah. right? So what was number three? Uh, Germany's got the number three. Germany's got number three. Yep. Okay. Yep. Followed by Poland and then Ireland, bringing up the bringing up the back. Okay, so they did split up the United Kingdom. Okay. Oh yeah! yeah so. Oh yeah! That would be interesting to see if they split off Scotland from the United Kingdom. That would be interesting to see if Scotland's well, numbers are different. I, I don't have that data, but it would be interesting. Yeah, and I apologize to any Irish listeners. Only Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Yeah, so damn that's it. That's my fault. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. All right. We're clocking in just over two hours. This is officially the longest episode of this uh this podcast i can't say i'm surprised no me this neither is a lot to go into oh in it's, a, it's a whole lot it's a whole lot yeah but uh no this is this is a great topic and uh more to come all right yeah, yeah. all right so let's close this out um you want to give out our social media links absolutely um so we're at uh, a nice place to brew.com and on uh facebook and uh twitter it's nice place to brew instagram nice place to brew i think i have that you right you got it and of course and, our website um, at www.aniceplacetobrew george has designed a fantastic website and um if you uh, want to reach us send uh, come uh, send us uh, something via our social media links yeah if you guys have any uh suggestions about future episodes if you have any um feedback on this topic uh let us know we're always open to that and uh we we like to hear from you yeah absolutely all right let's close this out all right let's raise a glass it takes a lot of good beer to make great beer cheers cheers cheers